You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello, Toronto. Good afternoon. And a nice sunny afternoon. It's beautiful out there. I was just outside and down here at Sugar Beach. There's a concert taking place in our sister station, The Edges Studios. And people are out and about and enjoying it. I hope wherever you are, you are enjoying it. Alan Carter has the week off. Uh, I hope he's enjoying that. And I, Ed Keenan, of the typically of the Toronto Star, regular voice on this radio station, am just back from a week off. And happy to be here with you through to the end of the week. We have a ton of stuff to talk about today. But first, uh, the big news after this weekend, of course, certainly for some of us, is that uh, is that Kawhi, he, he didn't choose us. Kawhi Leonard, uh, he gave us a magical run, a championship, those four bounces that will always be with us. And then in free agency, the city kind of got down on its knees and begged. It was a little bit humiliating, actually, the extent to which uh, people were, were just groveling with Kawhi. Please choose us. Please choose us. Turns out that Kawhi is sort of this master planner manipulator I was reading one thing that it turns out like he's like the best team executive in the league. Like he engineered his own situation to play in the city he wanted to play in and has wanted to play in all of his life, his hometown, uh, with the team he wanted, with the teammate he wanted, and made it all happen. That teammate, Paul George, was under contract with another team, but he got Paul George to quietly, silently force a trade uh, so that they could play there together. And you know what? I, I can't be mad. It's like um, before sunrise, like the perfect kind of summer romance. It could never last. It was never going to last. And yet he came. He swept us off our feet. It was magical. And now it's time for him to go home and we say goodbye. It's like that, that one summer at summer camp that you'll always remember that shapes your life and all of that. Uh, Mayor Tory had this to say about uh, about Kawhi choosing Los Angeles over Toronto. So what's to say? Uh, maybe it was the jacket. Maybe he didn't like the jacket. But you know what? Kawhi, you brought us a championship. And that's important in this city. Uh, we haven't had too many of those in recent times, and it's going to get us onto a very positive wavelength where we're going to have more. And make no mistake, when you come back here, there's going to be no mercy. We'll still love you, but there's going to be no mercy when you come back here and play our Raptors. Right, and so then the Raptors can uh, can stick it to the Clippers. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see about that. Uh, you know, he talks about we haven't had a championship in a while. We did, of course, have uh, a MLS soccer championship fairly recently, an Argos championship not too recently. But of the sort of the big three, the big four North American sports leagues, this is our first in in quite a while. Uh, you know, when the mayor talks about there are going to be more, many of us are thinking, maybe the Leafs. Is it the Leafs' turn? Is it the Leafs' turn? But Mitch Marner, still not signed yet, so no news on that front. Today at 5 p.m. on the Wait, There's More podcast, we'll hear from a documentary filmmaker, Ryan Sidhu, on, on why, you know, basketball no longer lives in the shadow of hockey in Toronto. You know, basketball was always kind of the little brother to hockey, and I think this championship run proved that, no, basketball in Canada is can be just as popular. It is 
increasingly popular. And obviously, we saw after the Raptors won the championship, the size of the crowds at the parade, the hum and buzz of the city during that run. Basketball has arrived as a major spectator sport here. But I can say, as somebody who coaches youth sports, and I coach uh, sort of house league hockey in the winter, and I coach baseball in the summer, and the number of kids who are now playing basketball is just really picked up. So, I mean, I can testify that as a, as a sport in Toronto and in Canada, basketball has arrived both as a spectator sport but also as a participation sport where it's starting to rival soccer, which is still not the biggest spectator sport here in Canada but is a massive youth participation sport, basketball taken right off. In other news, sticking on the leisure beat for a moment, uh, many of you may have heard about, many of you may have had tickets to the Roxidus Concert Festival that was scheduled to happen out near Wasega Beach on July 11th and 12th. It had all the all the big names from the 1960s through the early 90s. We're talking Aerosmith, Kid Rock, Nickelback, Leonard Skinner, it's the sound of a cottage dock party going all night, and it's not going to happen. You may have heard that, too. You especially heard that if you were one of those people who bought tickets, who got your wristband in the mail, and, and because it was a cashless event, we're supposed to load up money onto your onto your wristband so that you could spend it at the thing. Uh, you know, there's been some back and forth. They initially announced that they were canceling the concert because uh, because it had been too rainy. And because it was such a rainy spring, there was no way to prepare the grounds. Apparently, just swampland. Uh, no, no way to prepare the grounds for a big concert festival. Uh, one of the organizers uh, has since clarified to Global News that that, of course, is ridiculous. And that's not the real reason it was canceled. And whatever the reason, whatever it is... Most of the people who bought tickets, in addition to their profound disappointment at missing out on uh, yet another chance to see Nickelback and Skinner, was also, what the heck happens to my money, right? Uh, How do I get my money back? Eventbrite has announced that they are now refunding tickets and the wristband money. It's unclear how they're going to get paid back, who's exactly ultimately refunding the money, but the company that was selling the tickets is offering refunds. Uh, Alan Cross, our go-to expert on all things musical, we've got some audio of him talking about those refunds. Emails over the weekend from Eventbrite, which is the company that was selling tickets to the event. We are reaching out to let you know that your order for Roxas Music Fest 2019 has been refunded through Eventbrite. After multiple attempts to communicate and secure funds back from the Roxas organizers, they have provided no indication that they will be issuing refunds to ticket holders. We believe you deserve to get your money back now. So we have set up an Eventbrite-funded fan relief program to make all Roxas ticket holders whole while we continue to aggressively pursue the return of funds from the festival's creators. All right, so that's the news from Roxas. Just a little update on a story we have been following on this program, on this radio station, in this city for a while. We all know that as part of the provincial budget... Some fairly drastic cuts to legal aid funding were announced as of this weekend, as of yesterday. 
Legal Aid is no longer paying for private lawyers to do bail hearings. Uh, and so that has now stopped, uh, according to Global News, along with a slew of other cuts to nonprofit agency that assists people who cannot afford a lawyer or don't have one yet. So the Legal Aid cuts starting to dig in. You can no longer have a private lawyer represent you at a bail hearing and have Legal Aid pay for it. But here's just a small reminder as a certain premier fond of calling into this program, told Alan Carter earlier, there's nothing at all to worry about. If anyone needs support uh, on legal aid, feel free to call my office. You will, I will guarantee you that you will have legal aid. So, so if you're facing a bail hearing, you're not eligible for legal aid, but you heard it from the premier's mouth right here on this radio station, right here on this program. If you're having trouble getting legal aid, Call his office. So I suggest you do that. Right now would be a time to do that because we are going to take a break. If you remember 20 years ago, if you're a certain age, you remember Mike Harris was the premier. Mel Lastman was the mayor of Toronto. And there was a brief, maybe like a summer long or two summers long panic about squeegee kids, about squeegee men. Sometimes they called them squeegee people. They would stand out at uh, at intersections with a, a gas station squeegee in their hand, splash some water on your windshield, scrape it clean-ish, and then expect some change. And they became such a big problem that the provincial government passed something back then to fight the menace of squeegee people on our streets called the Safe Streets Act, which outlawed aggressive panhandling, but all kinds of other panhandling. They make it a ticketable offense to um, solicit change while standing on a road or from passing cars and a number of other things. It was called the Safe Streets Act. Now, in 2019, I can't remember the last time I saw a squeegee person anywhere on the streets of Toronto, so maybe the Safe Streets Act got rid of them one way or another, but a Toronto Star investigation of sort of Safe Streets Act's panhandling tickets over the last five years came up with some pretty interesting results. 31,000 anti-panhandling tickets written since 2013. 46 people received more than 100 of them. One man was ticketed 467 times personally. And you won't be surprised to find out that 95% of these were not paid. Most of these tickets are actually not for panhandling in an aggressive manner. Just 21% of all tickets for what is, is defined as soliciting in an aggressive manner. The rest were for something else. So the stars sort of number crunching says that these tickets are worth $1.5 million in fines over a five-and-a-half-year period, many of them to the same people over and over and over again, people who are homeless, people who are on ODSB, people who are 
often unable to pay and just don't pay it. They often don't even show up for their court dates. Rick Frank, an executive with the Fair Change Community Legal Clinic, which is challenging the Safe Streets program. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I understand you're opposing it. Yeah. But just for a moment to consider it from the other side, like why are we continuing to write these tickets? It seems like they're nuisance tickets for the the panhandlers themselves in, in many cases, although if they're trying to get their lives back together, this substantial record of fines could work against them. But we're not actually even really collecting these fines effectively. I don't know that most of these people are doing anything that's particularly menacing. What's the official explanation, do you know, for why they continue to write these tickets? Well, the official explanation has been that it's an effective method to, cure, to curb aggressive panhandling, it's dangerous for people to be walking on the roadway, and this is an effective way to uh, deter them, in a sense. And I'll, I'll just point out that we had reached out to the ministry to, to get their official explanation, the Ministry of the Attorney General, and we, we didn't get a response from them. So what's your response to that sort of typical explanation that this is these behaviors are unsafe, either for the panelists themselves or for the people around them, and that this is an effective way to, to shut that down. It's totally ineffective because people who are homeless, people who are panhandling, are doing this in a safe manner for the most part. And secondly, a fine isn't going to be an effective deterrence because they didn't have the money in the first place to pay it. And giving them a fine, oftentimes our clients will just throw the ticket away or misplace it or forget about it and just kind of completes the cycle. Yeah, I mean, you probably heard exactly the same stories, but in the Star investigation, I mean, they were talking to people who basically, they save the tickets because they make, like, you, you know, good toilet paper or whatever, or something to mop up spills, or else they just throw them right up. The, the vast majority of them don't tick the box to contest it in court. They don't show up in court. They don't ever pay them. They go to collection agencies who are completely ineffective at collecting on them. Of course. Yeah, 95% of the people who receive tickets for the Safe Streets Act can't pay them and they don't show up. So they just get convicted in in absentia, which means convicted um, without their presence. And the tickets just kind of stay there and they stay in the system, but nothing happens with them and they don't get collected on. It sounds like, from an official perspective, on the evidence here, one and a half million dollars worth of tickets, almost none of them paid. It doesn't seem like it's having an effect as like a punishment or a deterrent. There's police resources involved in writing these tickets. Uh, Beyond that, what is the effect on the people who receive them and don't pay them? Well, it can be punishable, um, get followed up, get harassed by police often. Um, Part of the challenge challenges the... um, the act as a, as a whole for um, presumption of innocence issues and for issues of right to life, liberty, and security. Right. And, and how so? How does that, uh, you know, make it show up? Well, it's going to be punishable if it's compounded by jail. And um, some of our clients who have 40000 or $50,000 of tickets um, get threatened with jail or they're scared that they can go to jail for non-payment of fines. Rick Frank. From the Fair Change Community Legal Clinic, thanks for sort of walking us through this this question of why why we're still ticketing the homeless, essentially just for being homeless. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Unfortunate. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. From the homeless to housing, 
I don't mean to trivialize it with a insensitive segue, right? Obviously, people who are homeless in this city are in a fairly desperate situation. But even people who are housed, who are homeowners or potential homeowners, are also in a f- difficult situation because as we see here in another Toronto Star investigation where they were crunching the numbers, essentially every single neighborhood in Toronto housing at today's prices is unaffordable for the average person who lives in that neighborhood, not just for people who'd like to. So they, they produced this map here at the Star uh, in a story by Patty Winza that looks at every single neighborhood of the city the average selling price of a family home here, that includes detached houses, semi-detached houses, row houses, townhouses, storefronts with apartments above them, anything that would be considered a single-family home. And then they look at, if you had the 20% down payment, how much that would cost to just carry the mortgage, right? How much you'd need to earn. And in every single neighborhood of the city the average family that lives in that neighborhood does not earn enough in order to pay those bills. So, for instance, if you look at the the bridal path even, which is the most expensive housing area in the city, the median selling price of a home in the bridal path, Sunnybrook, York Mills neighborhood, is $3.98 million, right? But if you had a 20% down payment to carry the mortgage on that, you would have to earn $655,000 a year. And the average family in that neighborhood only earns $215,000 a year. Now, that's pretty rarefied air up there, but you go neighborhood by neighborhood, and even in the most, quote-unquote, affordable area of the city, Mount Dennis, the neighborhood around Weston Road and Eglinton Avenue, a purchaser would need an annual income of more than $100,000 to qualify for a mid-priced home. That costs $616,500. And in that neighborhood, in fact, they earn significantly less than that. Less than $100,000 a year in Mount Dennis. And in every other neighborhood of the city. It's actually closer to fifty dollars or $60,000 in many of the more affordable neighborhoods of the city. We, we knew this already, but it's not just that prices in Toronto are high, it's that they're out of reach in every single neighborhood of the city. I do wonder, we talk about the middle class and what's out of reach for the middle class, and politicians love to talk about the middle class. And I just wonder, like, what are we even talking about when we talk about the middle class these days? There was a story in the New York Times, and somebody pointed out on Twitter that, you know, they did a story about how the middle class is struggling in America today. And their example, one of their examples, was a Pennsylvania couple who earned two hundred to $400,000 a year, right? Uh, there's a quote from the, the woman in that couple who's saying, I can get decent meat and vegetables, still organic, but I, I find them close to the expiration date so they can buy it at a discount. It's like they're detailing the extraordinary burden. She's a sales representative for a medical supply and device company. He's an emergency room doctor. They make well over $200,000 a year, and they consider themselves middle class. Everybody considers themselves middle class. 
whatever the middle class is, they can't afford a home. I think actually the key partly to seeing that is when you look at that bridal path thing and you see that people who live there are living in $4 million homes and earning over $200,000 a year, but still that's not nearly enough to afford the house they live in. I think this is why everybody winds up thinking they're part of the struggling middle class is because even objectively wealthy people spend right up to the limits of what they can possibly afford and strap themselves out. Uh, but, you know, where we started with this was was with people who are, by nobody's definition, a middle class, and that's who our police are giving tickets to. So there we go. We come around full circle on that. Organizations right now are very attracted to frauds and thefts because the penalty related to frauds are very uh, minimal. It's less severe than being arrested for drug trafficking. So they do see an area where criminal organizations are very attracted because the yield of profit is much higher in a fraud and the chances of going to jail for a long time is reduced compared to drug trafficking. So that was the voice of Henry So, a former RCMP organized crime and money laundering investigator who is now a senior manager for major fraud probes with the auditing firm MNP. And as he was explaining there, it seems like organized crime in this country has found a new drug trafficking, in a sense, an area of crime where there are big profits to be made at relatively less risk because of flaws in our justice system. And so they are engaging in fraud, laundering that money, as Global News has been reporting over time, through the real estate market. Joining us now to discuss it is Sam Cooper of Global News. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We were just hearing Henry So there talking about criminal organizations moving on to fraud. you have a sense of why they're doing that and how? Yes. Well, criminal organizations, as, as Henry So told me, they're, they're seen, you know, as violent uh, blue-collar thugs, and um, some of them are that, but, but now they are very sophisticated business-like organizations, the experts say. They are hiring uh, lawyers, accountants, computer experts, business experts, and they have realized that fraud is a really soft spot, and it's a, it's a high-reward and low-risk way of generating criminal proceeds. That's not to say that they're not moving large loads of drugs 
into Canada. But what they've realized is that fraud and money laundering go hand in hand, so they can commingle, uh, you know, in some ways proceeds from other more traditional organized crime uh, gateways. That would be, you know, prostitution, illegal gambling, drug trafficking. But they can run frauds on businesses and people make a lot of money and then uh, launder it. And it, it really is just a, a way of commingling profits from many areas and moving it through banking systems. And they're getting very good at it, we're told. Now, when we talk about fraud, I mean, that's everything from, from passing bad checks to like Ponzi schemes to the swampland in Florida. What areas of fraud are organized crime in Canada really getting into in a big way? This affects the average person in ways that they they will have, you know, we can say something as simple as these email scams where you get an email from your supposed long lost cousin halfway around the world and and uh, you wouldn't believe it but some people do fall for those they they click and they they may send what seems like a small amount of money hoping to get a lot of money back they never get that money back and uh it's organized crime that are behind those schemes there are you know people are familiar with phishing scams where something that looks like a legitimate company will send you an email saying please click on this we have something to discuss with your bill or we have this offer that's coming from organized crime that are very good at replicating what looks like uh, legitimate businesses and getting you to send money that is even being done to corporations uh, the the crime networks are stealing identities and they're they're using those to send fake invoices to big corporations and we're told taking hundreds of thousands of dollars even targeting police and government uh, agencies and successfully defrauding them. So there's so many, there's as many scams as you can imagine, but the new information here is we're learning that uh, Canada is so vulnerable and it's organized crime behind something that, that doesn't seem as dangerous as, you know, murder and drug trafficking, but, but is very bad. So now, as uh, Henry so told you, they're kind of exploring a systemic weakness in our justice system that's vulnerable to scams. What makes us vulnerable in that way, and, and how can, could our government fix it? There's a few layers to that. So, so first of all, um, fraud is very difficult to investigate. Uh, it's much like the money laundering we've been talking about in our investigations. These are sophisticated paper trails are created. You need forensic accountants. You need people that can unwind uh, complicated corporate structures, shell companies, international transfers of funds. And as we see in, in, in money laundering, the RCMP just doesn't have the capacity to tackle the financial crime side that is often so connected to the violent crime side because that's where you launder the money. So uh, we, we also on the legal, you know, on the, the side of laws, the penalties for being caught with fraud are so low that uh, it turns out that corporations really realize, uh, why would I report something that's very embarrassing to my company? We may have, you know, given away a lot of money that we didn't need to. If the police won't be able to prosecute it, if the penalty, if someone is caught, is so low, and if it'll be very difficult to uh, receive funds back. So we were told that uh, it's believed over 90% of frauds are not even reported to police. Oh, wow. I mean, that's the definition. It's like there's a lot of money being made there, but as you were just explaining, there's a lower chance to get caught because of the resources in the justice system, and then even if you do get caught, the penalties aren't that severe. It seems like a significant and potentially growing problem here in Canada to pay attention to. 
Absolutely. We're told that this is a trend that's been noticed by, you know, hardcore organized crime investigators have seen it growing over the past 10 years. And again, they know that the criminal organizations are very adaptable, very intelligent. They're hiring smart lawyers and accountants and looking for the weak spots in Canada's system. Sam Cooper of Global News, thank you for uh, walking us through that. Thanks very much. It's so bad that I think it's good. It's so bad that I think it's good. Yeah, it's so bad. Hey, we fight for it. Uh, criminals fight warrants. The problems we ignore it. The suffering we adore it. The pain is in the flashy clothes, the way she wore it. I can see it in the eyes before it. No longer is it dormant. She liked the way he performed it. Chasing money, can he afford it? She liked to be rewarded, absorbed. Yo, but I think she need to be supported. Instead of facing body is distorted. And her whole life feeling morbid. But life is like art where the paint started. The smart, the dumb, but not the faint-hearted. So use the time we Every woman has a pair of those period panties, okay? That's like a fact. All right, that is from Zach and Miri Make a Porno. So if you're doing a woman's laundry, you would see that they have panties that they wear during the times when leakage would come up. And yet, finally, after years and years and years, executives in business have realized that too and have addressed it with changing the definition of period panties. And that's that's a bit of a change because the way... Things used to work when you're marketing to women. As a column in the Globe and Mail by my former colleague, Leanne George, says today, is that they would just make things a little bit smaller, a little bit pinker, and a little bit more expensive. Or you would hear this sound, and you think, well, now there's a man crunching on a corn chip. And you know what that sounds like? Oh, that's not a very ladylike sound. So what if we made it less crunchy and less zesty and less of that cheese on your fingers? And I think my understanding as a dude here is that women around the world would hear that marketing pitch and say, that's not a problem I had. You're not solving a problem I had. Leanne George, as I mentioned, who wrote that column, she's former editor-in-chief of Chatelaine Magazine, and she's a founder of George & Co., uh, and she was writing today about how uh, women aren't buying it anymore, but what they are buying is products that are actually designed by women to solve problems that they do have. Leanne, how are you doing? Hi, Ed. I'm doing great. Sorry, sorry for the rambling intro, but I just... No, I love it. Once I started reading and, and then looking around at the examples of what you were talking about, it's just like, I as a guy can be oblivious, but it seems like, how, how has it taken us this long? It's kind of hilarious. But what I think I think is most incredible is how quickly it's changed. So this, this shift of how we market to women, uh, you know, remained virtually unchanged for decades. And then in the last... In, in, from my perspective, five years, um, it, because of social media reaching a critical mass and women talking directly to each other and bypassing the, 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 the um, traditional gatekeepers of, 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 you know, what women 
are told is the right kind of way to be a woman. Um, everything is kind of changing in terms of beauty standards, in terms of what we should feel good and bad about, in terms of, you know, expectations around what it means to be a successful woman. And I think one of the ways we're seeing that sort of manifest is in, is in, is in marketing in a really, really big way, and also in the, the development of products themselves. So as you said, you know, traditionally, if you're going to make a product for a woman, you'd say, okay, well, we got to make this, we're going to make a line of pens for women. We, we all know that you can charge more when we, we can charge women more for some reason. We put the pink tax on it. <laughs> we make, well, because it's dainty and pretty. Yeah. How do we make a pen for women? We make it a little bit more slim <laughs> and we make it pink and we jack up the price. And then we tell women, women in some sort of patronizing way that we've, we've, we've done this with them in mind. And I think that's, that's just been the way that women, products designed for her have kind of emerged for such a long time. Um, and there's so many examples of, of these products of pink toolkits and, okay, well, you know, how do we get women to use tools? Well, let's make them pink. And, <laughs> And it's and and like you said, there was a very very famous, uh, very well. I should say it was shared internationally. The, the conversation that the, the CEO of PepsiCo had uh, with uh, a journalist, and when they they said, you know, we're experimenting with making a, a line of Doritos or a line of, that are for women in the sense that they don't have as much cheese dust on the finger, and they're not quite as they're in a smaller package that you can tuck into your purse in a dainty way. And like any woman I know who loves Doritos, which is like basically every woman I know, <laughs> I'm completely yeah. offended by this concept. You want more zesty? Yeah, stuff. I don't want less cheese. Yeah. Have you ever met a woman? I've never. It's, it's, <laughs> it's shocking to think about. But it's just, I, what, so what I think is really great is what we're seeing now is this uh, explosion of, of entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs who are selling often direct to consumer because you know we don't we're not limited by the traditional um, overhead or infrastructure of, 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 of businesses anymore. Um, you can launch a product online and sell directly to consumers and build your audience. And there are so many really smart businesses out there that are being um, that are have popped up that are focused on on women and they're really focused on addressing problems that women actually have that nobody has ever taken the time to to really explore um, and it's exciting it's so, exciting to see it happening. so so one example of that 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 people probably have heard of even men out there have probably heard about this because I think it made such a big splash is thinks and it's those period mm-hmm. underwear that we were just talking about Absolutely. So there's Thinx, there's and there's a few other brands. There's a Canadian company called Nix that does this, this, a similar thing, and it's it's not only for um, periods because you know women. That is something that women work were have to deal with. I mean, you, you sort of have to deal with, well, you know, once a month, <laughs> have, making mm. sure that you're all, you know. There's a, there's a lot of logistics that goes into having your period every month that men wouldn't know to think about. I mean, why would they? And um, so leakage and having this is, is, a, is a real concern for, for women. And the other, the other part of that is um, uh, incontinence, which is something that happens mm. to women as they age, particularly if they've had children. Um, that has become more of an issue when you have a bad cough. And <laughs> yeah, or if you laugh yeah. or sneeze. <laughs> right. yeah. So, so these 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 underwear that have have been kind of emerged in the last couple of years are kind of a revelation to a lot of women, um, and and I, I think it's one of those it's, it's a brand new product category, and it did not you know it was born out of, um, and which like a lot of these businesses that we're seeing popping up 
some woman who was a founder of the business who was looking for a product for herself could not find it and decided to make it. This is Rebecca. I'm going to jump in here and say there's one more thing you guys are missing, which is that it's also the cost thing. Because women, Mm. especially when you're talking about these sorts of things, women were spending tons and tons and tons of money every month that's even taxed in many places on the stuff. And now you can buy these products and you don't pay anything anymore. It's revolutionary. Yeah, that I mean that that is for some for some women too. I mean, depending on you know how your body works, maybe maybe you don't need anything else, and, and that that is a huge a huge change. And it's you know from an environmental perspective, there's an impact, and there's a lot there's a lot of really interesting thinking going on. And these are things that traditionally, you know, for the longest time, we just don't talk about as a, it's not a, it's not culturally appropriate to to talk about the fact that like every woman, almost every woman menstruates, or not not every woman, but you know, the vast majority of women. And here's a here's another thing that, again, opened my eyes a little bit just reading your article about the marketing of it, because many people would think, whether it's culturally appropriate or not, they would think that we're not deficient, like we do think in men even, about breasts a lot. But but as you say here, it's almost mind-blowing, even, even at this late date, that there's a bra brand now thinking about the reality that women have two breasts and they're not exactly the same size. And as soon as I read that, I thought, how is, how is this new? Like how, it's not like I had spent a lot of time thinking about it, but you would think the people buying bras would have for a long time needed products tailored to them this way. Well, this is it. And I, and I think the the challenge is that we've always, um, bras have always been marketed to women as something that they wear for predominantly for someone else's enjoyment. Like it's is it cute? Is it sexy? That's that's mm. how we tend to market and think about bras, and that's that's fine. And and you know, there's no that's there's no no judgment there if, if someone wants to feel and look a certain way or you know be appealing in a certain way. That's you know their business. But I think what is so interesting about what's happening now is the first time that bra companies are coming and saying, okay, all of that aside, sexy underwire, this you know, um, Victoria's Secret angel. And, and all of that stuff, like that stuff aside, you have to wear this thing every day. You need to be comfortable. Um, you have, there are tremendous fit problems. There's so many different body types out there and, um, you know, shapes and sizes. And, and, and as you say, sometimes your one breast is bigger or smaller than the other. And none of the, none of the bra companies have traditionally, um, touched on any of those issues so finally finally we're coming to that and i i hate to cut you off because i could talk to you all day about this and other things leanne it's been too long uh but we're just out of time but leanne george of fun thank you george and company uh thanks for joining us and thank you out there for listening today my name is ed keenan i'll be back in for alan carter tomorrow ciao ciao